you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's word as we continue in Isaiah. This morning we come to Isaiah chapter 30. I'll read this morning as the first 17 verses of Isaiah chapter 30. And this is a passage that's really dealing with God's judgment. This is this back and forth message in Isaiah about God's judgment for the pridefulness of man, the pridefulness even of his own covenant people, and then messages of his grace over and over. This, this morning's passage, really all 17 verses are in the context of judgment, but even in God's judgment, his grace breaks through. So hear now God's holy and inerrant word. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle of the beast of the Negeb, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach and a high wall bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If you turn the page, you'll see on uh, page six, there is an outline for you to follow today as we look at these 17 verses this morning. A sermon I entitled, A Shameful Plan, Smooth Words, and Real Grace. Three points that I would like to 
focus on. First, I'm gonna see in this passage how it's not only true of the people in Judah, but of us as well, that our efforts to save ourselves end in shame and disgrace. Our efforts to save ourselves end in shame and disgrace. You see that in the first seven verses. Now you may recall from past sermons as we've been working through Isaiah, that the people of Judah were under the threat of the Assyrians, the, the, the massive Assyrian empire that has pushed down through the northern kingdom of, of Israel or, or sometimes called Ephraim and is, is now pushing down upon Judah and threatening Judah. And God had repeatedly told them, even through Isaiah and other prophets too, all you need to do is trust me. In fact, he had announced over and over through, through the prophet Isaiah that the real threat for you, it's not Assyria. The real threat that you're facing is God's judgment. And the only way to flee from the judgment of God is not to run away from him, but toward him. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to run toward God. The answer to their dilemma and our dilemma is not to devise ways and means for saving ourselves, but to admit that the only strategy for salvation is the one God has provided. The strategy that he has provided and that strategy is his grace. So here we find God speaking explicitly about Judah's attempts to find salvation from Assyria by trusting in an alliance with Egypt. I mentioned this before, but it was kind of veiled. Here it becomes very clear. They're seeking salvation by going to Egypt. Actually, if you, if you jumped ahead in verse six, it describes the, the beast of the Negev and you hear about them carrying riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. And they're carrying those to, to a people that cannot profit them. They're, they're loading up their, their camels and donkeys with, with gifts and treasures to go to Egypt to plead, will you please save us? The, the translation back in verse one where it says, you who make an alliance. Alliance is a, is a good translation of the word used there. Um, you find in several different English translations like the ASV says, make a league form a league with Egypt or the, the new King James Version devise plans. You're gonna work together. The King James Version though, I think is actually strikes it the best. He says, you're gonna cover with a covering. You're, gonna, you're trying to come under the cover of Egypt. You, you may recall back in uh, chapter 28, verse 20, where God described, he says, the bed is too short and the covering too narrow. Remember, you're, you're looking for a bed to find rest in, but the bed you're resting in is way too small for you. You're hanging off the ends. I admit it, I've never had that problem. Bruce DeHaan, who prayed for us earlier, probably has had that problem a few times. I have not. But he also says the cover is too narrow. You're trying to find cover under a washcloth. It's the same word here. You're trying to find covering in Egypt Instead of running to God, Judah was planning to make an alliance then with, with Egypt. And it's no wonder that God begins this section by referring to his people as stubborn children. Egypt had been the country 
As we all know, this was the country of their ancestors' captivity. This is the, the place that kept them in chains and bonds. This was the house of horrors for God's people, a land of lamentation. And now instead of forsaking their stubborn pride by rushing into the embrace of God who formed them, the God who called them to be his people and the God who promised himself to them, they ran away from him toward their tormentor. But in reality, this wasn't the first time this had happened. In fact, if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 14, and we're to quickly look through a few chapters. You, you, you may know Exodus 14 is where you read about God's incredible work of bringing his people out of bondage, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea. This unbelievable work that God did to deliver them by his hand. All Moses did was hold up a staff and his arms were too weak and so he had to have people propping him up and God worked. He delivered his people on dry ground And then they saw not only the hand of God work, but but the armies of Pharaoh decimated. Chapter 15, we find Moses writing the song and all the people joined in. It was a victory song. Look at what God has done. Huzzah! Praising God. The women come out with tambourines. They're dancing and, and marching around the streets. Three days later, come to a place that's named Mara and the water's bitter. Three days, they grumble. Bitter water. A few weeks later, they're hungry. And in their hunger, listen to what they say. They say this to Moses. Weeks after they've seen this incredible work of God's deliverance, they said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (laughs) These are rebellious, stubborn children, and they have been for centuries and centuries and centuries. And here they are, here they are, God saying, here I am, trust me. And they say, no, we'll, we'll go back to Egypt instead. We would rather take our treasures back to Egypt and trust our tormentor than you. Now, before we wag our fingers and shake our heads at the people in Judah, we need to pause and ask ourselves if we aren't tempted to show the same kind of stubbornness in our lives. If you are in Christ, you too have been set free. You have been liberated, but not from bondage in Egypt, but from the bondage of sin. Sin both as your accuser and as your tormentor. You are freed from the condemnation of sin. If you are in Christ, you are justified by faith in him. You are accepted in the beloved. But you're also freed from the enslaving power of sin. Paul addresses this in Romans 6 when he says, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is no longer your tormentor. But how often in our stubbornness, we often begin longing for what we know, our past sin, meat pots and bondage in Egypt. We long for that instead of entrusting ourselves to the one that we can't control. We can't control God, but we desperately need him because he is the only one who offers us grace. And hope. Why do we struggle with that? 
Why is that so hard to not run to the things that we feel like we can control even if they destroy us instead of entrusting ourselves to the one who we can't control but who loves us? Because it takes faith. (laughs) It takes faith. It takes surrender. How about when we're faced with opposition or fear, anxiety or an overwhelming sense of dread? Where do we go? refuge. The people of Judah, they formed an alliance with their former oppressor instead of running toward God's grace. Where do we look for covering? Where do we turn? Transition, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Jonah 2. Jonah 2. Y'all have no idea how corny I can be. My kids know, and I've told them they have to hide it. Um, Jonah chapter two. I've been, I've been uh, going through Jonah with the, with the kids over at RCS on Wednesday morning during morning meeting. I love the book of Jonah. We, I preached through it years ago, and maybe you some, you'll recall some of that. But Jonah is this unbelievable story that, that is very easy to see in your mind's eye because God calls Jonah, if you remember, to, to rise and go to Nineveh. This is my word for you, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah arises and goes to Tarshish, or tries to. He goes the opposite way. God says, do this, Jonah does this. And from that point on, you see this continual descent in Jonah's life. Jonah goes from Jerusalem down to the coast. That's, that, that would, he would be heading west, but, but it's down in elevation. He goes down to the coast. He goes down into the harbor, gets down onto a boat. In the boat, he goes down into the hull. You may remember there's a storm that happens. God, God reveals himself in this storm and finally reveals that Jonah is this disobedient prophet. And Jonah is thrown down into the water and he sinks down into the depths and he's swallowed down into the belly of a fish. So this is this descent as Jonah runs from God, like the people of Judah, running from God. We'd rather go to Egypt. What I want to look at just briefly is Jonah chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Now, if you looked up before this, you would see that uh, um, verse 3, he says, you've cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. He describes his, his situation, weeds are wrapped around his head. He's at the very roots of the mountains. He's as deep as you can get. So what does he do? Look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 7. This is Jonah praying From inside the belly of this fish, he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's in the belly of the fish and he's worshiping God. Why? Because he took his eyes off himself He took his eyes off his circumstance and he remembered God. He redirected his gaze and it changed everything. From that point on, you see then this ascent of Jonah in a sense. And he winds up in Nineveh doing as God called him. He wasn't perfect, he struggled to the end. Now back in Isaiah chapter 30, back in Isaiah 30, notice the result of Judah's stubborn refusal to trust God. For Jonah, it resulted in him being going down, down, down. But look at the result of Judah's refusal to trust God. He's told that the protection of Pharaoh will turn to your shame. The shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. 
That's in verse three and four. In verse five, we read, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And then finally, verse seven, he says, Egypt's help is worthless. It is empty. So Judah's plan for self-salvation, it would end in shame and disgrace, not salvation. Instead of entrusting themselves to God who alone had delivered them and promised to deliver them, even now, they place their confidence in their own plans, their own devices, and that actually would lead them right back into bondage. That's what happens. Our efforts to save ourselves end in shame and disgrace. Secondly, then, we see that in our rebellion and stubbornness, we prefer smooth words over hard truths. Look at verse eight and nine again. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Now this We've heard something very similar to this already. Remember back in chapter 28, the priests and the prophets, they they made fun of Isaiah's preaching and his teaching. They said it was like babies babbling. They said the message, this is a a message for toddlers. They minimized the message. But now in this sermon, Isaiah says that his people are rebellious. They're unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. It's not that that their ears are closed. It's their will. It's their heart that's closed. They refuse to listen. Uh, You you may recall from past illustrations, I think it's been a little while, uh, we currently have a dog named Sandy. And Sandy is by far the most obedient dog we've ever owned. Now she's, she's very needy, but she's also very obedient. And she's very intelligent and when her intelligent, when her intelligence and her obedience line up, it is a beautiful thing. She will obey just with the smallest command. Actually, Sometimes she'll obey just with a nod of the head. What can I do for you, master? (laughs) Especially if I have a treat in my hand. Then she's extremely obedient. But there are other times when I can't yell at her loud enough. This morning, this happened as she was pursuing a chipmunk. I couldn't yell at her loud enough. I can't jump up and down enough. I can't wave my arms big enough to get her to listen to me. It is as if she has lost all ability to hear me now There are times when she willingly hears me and times when she willfully doesn't, refuses to. Isaiah expresses that this is what's at the heart of their problem. You're willing, you're you're willfully refusing to listen. They wouldn't listen. And then listen as he continues and he's gonna express their thoughts and attitudes in verses 10 and 11. Now, this isn't necessarily what they were saying with their mouths, but it's It's most definitely what they were demonstrating in their lives. Look at verse 10 and 11. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. One of the commentaries I've been using is by a man named Alec Matier. It's a really, really good commentary. Commentary on Isaiah. Listen to how he captures this. He writes, quote, Isaiah is putting their attitudes into words, verbalizing the implications of their actions and reactions. They did not want a supernatural message. I'll pause. So they say, 
Tell the seers, don't see to the prophets, don't prophesy. We don't want anything supernatural. Nor a message, he he goes on to say, nor a message of moral demand. Do not prophesy what is right. But they wanted a ministry that left the surface of life unruffled. A ministry of trifles, illusions. They did not want holiness in a life that follows the way and the path and certainly not the holiness of God himself, close quote. I know that was a lot, but it's, he's, he's summarizing what happens, what's said right here. And I've got to tell you the truth. I don't want my life ruffled. I don't want my life ruffled. I don't know about you. I think most of us, we don't want people around us who agitate our days or our plans or our nice, peaceful life. Don't, don't rock the boat. If we aren't careful, we can begin to think that God should treat us that way too. And we want God's word to affirm us, to excuse us, to let us off the hook, to tell us how great we are, to validate the path we've chosen, not to confront our rebellious hearts or challenge our personalized and individualized sense of morality, and certainly not to require us to change. But that is exactly what God is determined to do because he doesn't only save you from the eternal consequence of your sin and its condemnation, but he also saves you from its grip, the grip that it has on your life. He wants to set us free from sin's clutch on our affections and our emotions, sin's grip on our self-assessment and sin's influence on our thinking and speaking. And God most often does that work by ruffling us up through his word. I think ruffle is too light a word, actually. I think it's more like a stone polisher. I think that's what it's called. If you've ever seen a stone polisher where you take a bunch of jagged stones and you put them inside that container, this sphere that spins and it tumbles and tumbles and tumbles and tumbles for hours upon hours and these jagged rocks that you put in at the end, you take them out and there's something that you don't wanna throw in the yard, you wanna put them on display, they're, they're beautiful. They're, they're incredible. Now, if you only put in one jagged rock with nothing but smooth stones, I don't think it works. I think they have to clash against each other. God's word is like that when we bring it into the, the sphere of our lives. We, we need the word of God to, to crack and chip away and pound and polish us into the new creation he has already declared us to be. And the Spirit is the one who provides the power. The Spirit provides the power behind that. It's His Word that works. He does the work, but He he uses His Word. So we have to avail ourselves of that. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, do you let God's hard words impact you? I'm talking about the passages and the verses and the, the truths in Scripture that confront you and that ruffle you. I, I gotta tell you, I'm in the tumbler right now. And his word has a lot to chip away still, I'm realizing that. Here's one of those, those hard rocks that keeps chipping away. You know this verse from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust him in the unknown. Don't lean on my own understanding. Acknowledge him in everything even in my weakness? Or maybe this short verse that's in 2 Corinthians that that continues to 
tumble around in my life when God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I gotta tell you, there's some jagged corners in my heart and those may sound like smooth words to you that his grace is sufficient for you, but they ruffle, they ruffle some things in my life, my desire for control or or comfort or safety or approval. God is saying, trust me, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need anything else. That tumbler spins and God's word pounds us more and more, shaping and chipping and polishing us to be like his son. Now finally, at this point, those who refuse to be confronted with God's word, you can read about what happens to them in verses 12 to 14. Those who refuse to hear the Holy One of Israel because you despise the word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant It's breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that's smashed. It goes on from there. This sin that you keep running to will crush you in the end. Now, finally, (laughs) in spite of us, not because of us, but in spite of us, God offers real grace. Verses 15 through 17, I'm gonna close with this. These are actually still in this section of the sermon that is dealing with God's just judgment for his people. Now, the next section, beginning in verse 18, is a glorious declaration of God's grace. I plan for us just to kind of soak and marinate in that next week, Lord willing. But for today, even as Isaiah describes why God judges his people, we find this clear and compassionate expression of the gospel. And this announcement isn't just given to the people in Judah because they deserved it any more than we deserve it. it's, It's just out of God's sheer kindness, his undeserved love. Listen to verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. I would encourage you, put that in the tumbler of your life. Let that do its work on you. The Lord God that here speaks, he says, I have spoken to you. This is the message of grace that you've heard. And this is the sovereign Lord who is the Holy One of Israel speaking. The God who is high and exalted of whom the seraphim saying in antiphonal worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This same God has said to his rebellious people over and over and over in returning, that is repentance, same word, in repentance and rest is your salvation. This exalted, sovereign, judging God says, I'm here. Run to me. Through Isaiah, God is announcing to leaders and the people in Judah who are forming their caravan, they're getting ready to go to Egypt with their treasures to try and buy security from their past oppressor. And he says, turn around, repent, come back. That is a word of love. The word to repent is always a word of love because it is God himself calling us back. Come back to me. Don't spend your money on what can't profit you. Don't waste your time and don't commit your plans to something that is doomed. 
all in an attempt to save yourselves. That's a road that leads to death. Turn around and have life. And notice that life isn't just repentance and then achievement. He doesn't say, come back to me and earn your, earn your place. He doesn't say, come back to me and prove your worth. No, he says, repentance and rest. Here's this people who are doing everything they could think of. They're coming up with plans. They're having extra meetings. They're trying to figure out how do we work this out? How can we come up with the right plan to save ourselves? And God says, turn around, come back to me and stop. Trust me, just trust me. This is your salvation. Salvation, it's not found in our achievements. It's found in our surrender to God's care. It's not found in running from God. It's not found in our achievement. As Isaiah's name reminds us, his very name means salvation is of the Lord. It's of him, it's from him, it's not from us. It's by his grace, it's not based on our merit or our accomplishment. That's, what, that's the gospel, it's right there in verse 15. And, and he then describes the way his people will face the enemy, the way they will face challenges and quietness and trust shall be your strength. Those who repent and come to me and rest in me, then this is what will be your strength. Quietness and trust. Quietness means the absence of frenzy and restless anxiety, the absence of that. And trust just means confidence faith and quietness and faith, that'll be your strength. This will characterize the strength that God provides his people, that spirit provided, spirit wrought strength. And it's for those who will repent, those who will come back and rest in him. And this makes me think of the book of Ephesians and the armor that God provides. It, it doesn't look like the world's armor, doesn't like the world's weaponry either. It's the armor that he provides because we aren't fighting against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. Instead, God outfits us with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace like shoes on our feet, preparing the way for us to walk in them. God provides us this shield of faith. And as someone reminded me this past week, sometimes our arms feel too weak to even hold up the shield of faith, but God has already provided it. We're shielded behind it and he gives us the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word. That's our armor and that's our, our weaponry. And then how do we use that armor? We often stop right there. The very next phrase is critically important. After Paul says, this is how we are outfitted. And then he says, praying at all times. Brothers and sisters, prayer is not passive. It is the battle. It is the battlefield for us. He calls us into that. And we pray in the spirit. This church is facing some significant challenges in the days and weeks ahead, undoubtedly. And if we aren't careful, we'll be tempted to engage in battle with the wrong kind of armor and the wrong kind of tactics. The path forward is repentance and rest. That's the path that God offers. Turning from our other designs and plans to save ourselves, turning from those, repenting and resting in Christ. He is the hope for us individually and corporately, period. Now for the people of Judah that God offered salvation and strength to, we then sadly read, but you were unwilling. So real grace, real grace is offered 
and they refused. Stubborn, rebellious, striving and fleeing from God while God offered salvation and strength and rest and trust and life. This passage confronts me also. What do I think I need in order to find safety and security in life? Am I tempted to run to the the false comfort of sin, sin that God's redeemed me from? What alliances do I think will give me hope because I don't trust that my alliance with Jesus is enough? Do I know the strength of quietness and trust? Are we willing to live a life of repentance and rest and the word of God tumbles and tumbles and polishes and transforms? Thanks be to God for that. His word is indeed a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. But it is also living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God will use it to do his good work. It's graciously given to us by God. And he calls us to repent of our own devices and plans, to rest in him, to see and know the salvation that's ours in Christ. And then we experience the strength of quietness and trust. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace-filled word, your graciously given word. I thank you that it speaks to us words of comfort and hope and life and that you use it to be a balm to our souls. But I thank you that it's not smooth words that we would choose. You've given us something much better because you love us and you wanna confront, you wanna confront our tormentor. You wanna confront sin in our lives. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will hear your invitation to come to you and find rest and that we will indeed surrender ourselves to you and know, know that our hope, our hope is not in alliances. Our hope is not in our plans and our devices. Our hope is in surrender to you. I ask this all in Christ's name, amen.